Well, good morning again. Um, I, you, you may recall that a couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we really just had a wonderful um, service that included all sorts of different elements, including we did the um, ordination and installation of, of two of our, our, our new deacons, and, uh, and Pastor Dan just preached a wonderful sermon, and the service actually went until almost 11.30. It was, it was an hour and a half. So I, I, I take this as a competition. Uh, and so next week we're going to begin a three-month sermon series on the book of Ephesians. We're, uh, we're going to go through the whole book of Ephesians together as a church. Pastor Dan and I have been planning that out for you, and it's our prayer. We're really excited because we think that that is just going to be a great uh, series for our church family um, to encounter the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is all about God's grace and the way that that grace transforms our lives. And so I thought this week, as we are kind of uh, gearing up for that series, uh, it would be great to look at this uh, a well-known passage in Luke chapter 4 that comes right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In the story of Jesus' life, we get the birth narratives. He's born, he grows up, and he spends about the first 30 years of his life in relative obscurity. And then he's baptized in the Jordan River, he's tempted in the desert, and, uh, and our story picks up there. So we're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When the people heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the edge of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The word of the Lord. 
Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So this, this story from Luke's gospel covers the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And, and uh, we know from the other gospels that this, the period of time in these first few verses was about a year. So for about a year after the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus begins traveling through the areas of Galilee, and he is teaching with great power. He's performing miracles. He's healing people that are sick. And you can imagine that his word of Jesus' uh, exploits, so to speak, uh, get back to his hometown of Nazareth, it begins to generate a real sense of excitement. When someone from a small town becomes famous, that's a big deal in that small town, isn't it? Uh, many of you know that I grew up in Modesto. Modesto is kind of a small town by California standards. It's, it's similar to Visalia. Um, and people in Modesto are very excited about the fact that George Lucas is a hometown kid um, in Modesto. And I think that the feeling in, in Nazareth would have been something like that. Um, Nazareth was not a destination city. It was not the kind of place that would have been on any, you know, top 100 places to visit on your vacation or something. In fact, um, there was a saying about Nazareth, uh, which was kind of a cruel saying. It went like this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It doesn't really have much of a ring to it in English, I guess, but, but that was the saying. Archaeologists tell us that the city of, at the city of Nazareth at the time that Jesus was born probably had a population of about 400 people. So this was a small, forgotten, um, uh, insignificant city. And so you can imagine the curiosity, the excitement. What, what is this we keep hearing about Jesus? There would have been people in Nazareth in their late 20s and early 30s who would have remembered playing with Jesus on the streets, you know, as children. Most of the houses in Nazareth probably had tables and chairs or other furniture that was made by Jesus in conjunction with his father. The, the folks at Nazareth would have been able to recall standing side by side with Jesus at the synagogue and reciting the prayers together over the years. And so there was a real sense of anticipation. And, and when Jesus finally returned to his hometown and he headed to synagogue, you can imagine that the synagogue was packed that morning, right? No one was staying home to watch the game or sleeping in. Everyone was at the synagogue to see what would happen with Jesus. So the synagogue uh, uh, routine, the liturgy of the synagogue, was to begin with the singing of psalms. So they would have sung psalms to the of that sermon that Jesus preached on that day. But we only have the first sentence. Did you catch that in verse 21? And he began by saying to them, Day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This was the first sentence of his sermon. And we don't know for sure what this sermon was about, but we do know that, the, that the, the, the topic of the sermon was the year of the Lord's favor, because that's the reading the, that he read from the prophet Isaiah. So what is the year of the Lord's favor? 
the year of the Lord's favor was part of the ancient law that God had given to his people, the Israelites. Um, you might recall that every seventh year uh, was a Sabbath year. And on that seventh year, there was a number of religious observances that had to be uh, seen to. But in, in economic and social terms, one of the significant things about that seventh year was that all outstanding debts were canceled. So anyone who had incurred debt over the previous seven years, maybe the, the, um, the crops had, had had a bad year a couple of years in a row and they'd had to take on, on debt or, or whatever had happened, uh, any family that had incurred debt over those seven years simply had those debts forgiven. They were annulled. Um, so I don't know what that would be like today. I don't know what would become of MasterCard or Visa or... Um, <laughs> you would not be able to purchase a 30-year home loan. They would sell seven-year home loans. Um, but, but this was a, a compassionate law that was designed to protect and help those who had fallen on hard times. A similar law um, about that seventh year was that all slaves were set free. The, the ancient Jewish people, like every ancient society, kept slaves. It was a little bit different than what we think of in the American South. But one of the differences was that every seven years, they were all set free. Um, and so that seventh year, that Sabbath year, was, was governed by a series of laws that God had given to his people in order to express his compassion for those who were suffering captivity, for those who were suffering oppression, for those who were destitute. Um, but there was also something in that ancient law that was even more radical and even more compassionate. And that was what happened every 50 years. Every 50 years was the Jubilee year. It was called the Jubilee. We call it the Jubilee. They didn't. We call it the Jubilee year because um, Jubilee is related to the, um, well, it's related to the Latin translation, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word. Um, that means sound the trumpet of liberty. And the idea was that every 50 years, the trumpets would sound and they would proclaim, this is the year of the Lord's favor. And for that entire year, there would be a whole series of celebrations. And one of the economic social realities of that year was that all land that had been bought and sold and, and transferred to other people would be returned to the original families that had owned it. So if, if your family had come upon hard times, maybe the crops had taken a downturn for a few years and you had to sell off some of your land or all of your land in order to survive. Or maybe uh, there had been a, a tragic accident and some of the young able-bodied men in your family were disabled and unable to work and you had to sell off some of that family land. Um, every 50 years, all of that land would be redistributed back to the original owners. And so basically once in a person's lifetime, more or less, um, there would be a fresh start. These laws were designed to prevent huge accumulation of wealth by any members of the society, and they were designed to protect and restore those who had fallen on hard times through no fault of their own or even through fault of their own and give them a second chance. And that year, that 50th year, was the year of the Lord's favor. No nation before the Israelites had ever had laws like that. 
And no nation since has ever had laws like that that express that kind of radical compassion of God for his people. Now, between the time when those laws were given to the Israelites and the time of Jesus, there was about 1,500 years. So how many times was that jubilee celebrated over the course of those 1,500 years? How many times was the year of the Lord's favor proclaimed? The answer is not even once. We have no, we have lots of records, but we have no record of that jubilee year ever being observed in the history of Israel. And it's not so hard when you stop and think about it to imagine why. Because to observe that jubilee year would have cost some very important people an awful lot. And so from the time in which that law was given to the Israelites up until the time of Jesus, no one had ever sounded that trumpet. No one had ever proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. Around the year 750 B.C., which would have been about halfway there, right? <laughs> From the giving of the law, about halfway to Jesus, God gave to the prophet Isaiah a prophecy. God gave a message to the prophet Isaiah. And that message was that someday God would send someone to do what the people of Israel had never done. And that's the message that Jesus read when he opened up the scroll of Isaiah. Let's read it again. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Isaiah is saying what you could not do for yourself, what you refuse to do for one another, God will one day do for you. But of course, the question is, who would do it? Who would pay whatever price it took to buy back all that land and to restore it uh, to those families? The deep truth, the deep underlying truth that is lurking behind the background of this whole law surrounding the Jubilee year is that we need God's grace. You know, we live in a world in which people set their hopes on all sorts of things that they think they can achieve through their own efforts. People set their hopes on their careers or their retirement plans or on politics or whatever it is. We're coming into an election cycle. I guess we've uh, unfortunately already started an election cycle. Um, but you and I both know things are going to get nuts in this respect. Every election cycle... Uh, what, you're, what you hear on every social media feed and every phone notification and so forth is that if we just get aggressive enough about our political ideas, then we will finally begin to experience the Jubilee. Then we will finally be able to experience utopia. We'll finally see heaven appear on earth. But the truth is that only the Lord's favor can save us. What was the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law to the Israelites? 
The purpose of the law was not to give a roadmap so that if the Israelites tried really hard, they could have a perfect society. That wasn't the point. The law was given as a mirror. The purpose of the law was to be a reflection for folks to reveal to God's people who they really are. The purpose of the law was to show God's people our shortcomings. Let me put it like this. God was not surprised that no one ever celebrated that jubilee, right? The point, the purpose for which God gave that jubilee year was to reveal to us the reality of our own condition. And the point of coming face to face with our own shortcomings was not, oh my gosh, we better try a lot harder. The purpose of giving that mirror, the purpose of, of giving us that moment of self-understanding was, was so that we would realize that we have to look somewhere else for the answer. The purpose of the Jubilee year was so that the people of God would realize that salvation would have to come from somewhere other than their own efforts. And so Jesus says, that's who I am. Jesus reads this prophecy and he sits down and he says, today this scripture is being fulfilled. This is it. Today is the day. So Jesus was really preaching about grace. That's what it says in verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the words full of grace that were coming from his mouth. Jesus was speaking about grace. But there is a catch. There's always a catch, right? Um, what is grace? At, when I was a kid, I was taught to say that grace is God's unmerited favor. That's a pretty good definition. Grace is God's unmerited favor favor. We like to uh, draw a contrast between uh, law on the one hand and grace on the other, right? So law is the realm of, of duties and of obligations and of rights. For example, if you're a citizen of California, then you have, by law, certain uh, duties, like uh, jury duty when you're summoned, and you have, by law, certain rights. You can participate in... Um, in the upcoming elections. God help us all. Um, but grace is something different than an obligation or a duty or a right. Grace is a free gift. Grace is something that is not earned. That's what unmerited means, that it's something that you cannot earn. And for that reason, it turns out that grace is offensive. Look at verse 28 with me. When the people heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Wait a minute. Just a minute ago, they were marveling at, uh, at the great words full of grace, and now they want to throw him off a cliff and kill him. Kill him. Why? Well, the answer is grace. It was grace that caused them to marvel, and it was grace that filled them with fury. That's what I mean when I say that grace is offensive. People get angry about grace because it means that God has no obligation. Nazareth, the people of Nazareth, felt that Jesus owed them something 
didn't they? He felt that Jesus owed them some miracles, owed them some healing. And they weren't wrong. I mean, it wasn't an unreasonable thought, was it? They had been his hometown. They had nurtured him. They had supported him in the way a small town of 400 people does. And it was perfectly reasonable for them to think, well, they probably should get some of the benefits of his miraculous ministry. But the problem is this, that when the people of Nazareth thought that they had a right to God's miracles, rights are based on law. If you have a right to a tax refund, it's because there are laws that govern how much money is taken for the government and how much money is owed you and stuff like that. So rights are based on law. The people of Nazareth thought that they had a right to something that was really grace. Entering the world of grace means leaving behind that world of duties and of obligation and of rights. Jesus tells two stories, or refers to two stories, that really uh, bring this point home. The first is the story of the widow at Zarephath. Basically, the way the story goes is that there was a famine, and, uh, and Elijah the prophet goes to the city of, Nazareth, of uh, Zarephath, which is in the territory of Sidon. Sidon was like a, uh, the heartland of idolatry. That was where all the people who hated God lived, right? Um, and so Elijah goes there, and he finds this widow who is cooking her last meal. She has just enough oil and flour for one more meal, and then that's going to be it for her. And God through the prophet Elijah, performs a miracle so that uh, that jar of flour and that jar of oil never run out. She just keeps scooping flour and pouring oil until the famine is passed and everyone has plenty to eat again. The second story, the story of Naaman, um, it has to do with the prophet Elisha. Naaman is the captain of the Syrian army. Now the Syrians were kind of like the people in Sidon. They hated God they were the sworn enemy of the Israelites. They were the neighboring empire that was violently oppressing the Israelites. And Naaman was the captain of that army. Um, but Naaman had a problem. He had leprosy, a disease, a cluster of diseases called leprosy. And so, um, and so Naaman hears that maybe Elisha can help him. So he goes to Elisha, and Elisha says, uh, go dip yourself into the Jordan River. Um, and, and, and Naaman does. And God, through the prophet Elisha, heals Naaman of his leprosy. So in one story, God's grace comes to a destitute woman neglected by society on the brink of starvation. In the other story, God's grace comes to someone who is rich and famous and powerful. But in both stories, God's grace comes to someone who hasn't earned it. Someone who is from Sidon, where idolatry is rampant and there's no faithfulness to the, to the true God. Someone from Syria, which is part of the military apparatus that is repressing the Israelites. God's grace comes to those who do not deserve it. So Jesus is really making two points by referring to these two stories. The first point is this. No one is excluded from God's grace. God's grace is not just for the Israelites. It's not just for the insiders. It's not just for the people who look like you or the people who check all the right boxes. 
it's not even just for those who are trying their best to live good lives. God will have mercy on whomever God will have mercy. So you can imagine maybe the people of Nazareth sitting in that synagogue getting a little bit uncomfortable as Jesus points out these stories. But the second point that Jesus makes is much stronger, and it's this. No one has a right to God's grace. Here's the problem. There were widows among the Israelites, God's own people, when Elijah goes trotting off to Zarephath. There were lepers amongst the Israelites, God's own people, when Naaman, the captain of the enemy army, is healed. Why didn't God heal them? We can't afford to be too gentle about this. Widows starved in Israel while Elijah was healing the woman in, in Zarephath. Lepers died in misery in Israel while Naaman the captain of the Syrian army, was healed. Isn't that wrong? If God's grace is going to come to anyone, shouldn't it come to God's own people? But God will have mercy on whomever God will have mercy. We don't like that. The people of Nazareth did not like that, and they took Jesus and they tried to throw him off a cliff. We don't like that, and, and we attack that idea by saying that makes God sound arbitrary. That's what we say. We think that there should be some kind of a system, right? <laughs> we think there should be some kind of a pecking order or some kind of law that governs the distribution of grace. And probably, if we're being honest, we're going to put ourselves somewhere in line. You know, I don't think that's any more unreasonable than the people of Nazareth were being. There are people in this room who have devoted lifetimes to making huge sacrifices for God to stick with God through thick and thin. Shouldn't they be in line? I don't think it's unreasonable. Uh, I don't think it's unreasonable at all. There are other times when we have a different idea. There are other times when we think maybe there should be a universal law of grace, right? Maybe every human being, because they're a human being, should have a right to the full measure of God's miraculous favor. But here's the problem with both of those ideas. The problem with both of those ideas is that if we have a right to it, then it's not grace. Grace is a gift. In fact, grace is more than a gift. I mean, you and I both know that when it comes to gifts, there are duties and obligations, aren't there? If you start showing up to events with gifts that are much too little or way too much, you'll quickly find out that it's not entirely appreciated because you're stepping outside those duties and obligations. But grace is God's unmerited favor. We cannot earn it. And because of that, we can never have a right to grace. We can never have a claim on grace, not because of anything we are and not because of anything we do. But the flip side of that is this, that we can never be excluded from grace, not because of anything we are and not because of anything we do. God will have mercy on whomever God will have mercy. 
The people of Nazareth had two very different reactions to grace, didn't they? They marveled and they were furious. And so my question for you today is what is your reaction to grace? To put the point in the same, or to put the same point in a different way, what is your reaction to Jesus? It's Jesus who proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, whose words on this day in Nazareth, in the synagogue, were full of grace. We know that Jesus is the word who is the fullness of grace. What Jesus is saying for us in this passage today is that we worship a God who reserves the right to swoop down totally uninvited into human lives and to begin something that no one has earned and that no one deserves. Grace in your life and grace in my life means that in a way that we will never be able to take credit for, that we will never be able to explain, that we will never be able to understand. God has laid hold of you and has turned you around in Christ Jesus. So let's marvel at that and worship. Will you pray with me? Father, we do not understand your grace. We confess that we are often like those at Nazareth who feel like there should be some way that we can have a claim, some way that we could have a right to grace. But Lord, we thank you that your grace is something that we can never earn, that we can never deserve, and for that reason is a free gift that we can also never lose and that we can never be excluded from. Lord, make us not like the uh, people of Nazareth, who responded with wrath and fury. But Lord, by the power of your spirit, give us hearts and minds that marvel at who you are and marvel at the work that you do in our lives and in this world. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.